Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, July 1st, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And for the first time in commentary podcast history, we have a guest who is coming on for the second time in a week. He's our Supreme Court guy. You know, some people have like a a basketball guy or a movie guy on their radio show. Well, here we have our Supreme Court guy with the case that is at the heart and center of his entire intellectual project. It's Adam White of AEI and the actually euphoniously named for the purposes of this podcast, Boyden Gray Center on the Administrative State. Is that right, Adam? Uh, hi again, John. Uh, it is the uh, the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. The Study of the Administrative State. And we have the most important administrative state decision coming down from the Supreme Court <clears throat> yesterday, which you will probably have heard, uh, is the apocalyptic decision by the Supreme Court to deny the Environmental Protection Agency the right to control carbon emissions according to the way it is being framed by the mainstream media. That is not what the decision actually says, but it is a, it is a landmark uh, in Supreme Court jurisprudence in that it is an attempt now by the conservative majority on the Supreme Court to codify or separate out what are the proper powers of Congress, the judiciary, and the executive branch, which is also what undergirds the Dobbs decision on Roe v. Wade and uh, actually, but that, that does not go to the administrative state. It does go to the balance and separation of powers. So this is a separation of powers decision and it is very important. So Adam, give us five minutes on this landmark decision. Oh God, all your listeners are now clicking for that fast forward button, uh, trying to do the math on what five minutes is. Um, okay. So we learned two things. First, uh, it turns out the chief justice is still, in fact, uh, the chief justice. He wrote the majority opinion in this climate case and also in another administrative law case came out the same day uh, involving immigration. In this climate case, West Virginia versus EPA, obviously climate regulation gets very complicated very quick. But the legal issue in this case is pretty straightforward. Uh, the Clean Air Act which covers a lot more than just climate regulation, but since Massachusetts versus EPA has, has covered climate too, it has a lot of different provisions, a lot of different ways the EPA can regulate. Uh, but one aspect, the one at issue here, uh, gives the EPA power to prescribe what the statute calls the best system of emissions reduction. And for the EPA's and the Clean Air Act entire history, that's well, we should say this statute is, if I'm right, the statute was written in 1971, which is a key element, I think. Yeah, the EPA, right. the Clean Air Act, it, yeah, it's gotten some updates, including in 1990 when when you were back at the White House. But uh, yeah, this is a 1970 statute. Okay, because this yeah, comes up later. The when when the statute was and how climate change as a topic did not come into being really and you know until many years after the statute and so the idea that the statute should can govern something comes up the statute should govern matters relating to climate change is itself in question yeah that's right i i don't think this case rolled back massachusetts versus epa which 
gave which in which the Supreme Court uh, concluded that the EPA has other Clean Air Act authority over climate change. But for this particular program, the best systems of emissions reduction, the EPA has practically always interpreted it in terms of things you might do to a power plant, uh, a manufacturing facility, just to clean, just to adjust the, the machinery on the site, we'll say, to reduce emissions of, of uh, just usual pollutants. What the clean, th this case though has to do with what's called the Clean Power Program, President Obama's EPA's sort of grand second term program to extend the EPA's authority well beyond just the usual power plants uh, to reach the entire system of energy production and distribution and turn the Clean Air Act from a program in, in, for cleaning up individual facilities into a sort of a comprehensive regulatory program for our entire energy economy. And uh, what's interesting, if you read the syllabus, which is the part of the decision that sort of summarizes it, uh, which handles this well and would be worth our listeners reading, even though there's a lot of terminology in it uh, that makes it a little bit of a slow go, is that the last seven years have featured very, to these two Democratic administrations, both the Obama administration and then the Biden administration, understanding that they were put dipping their toe into problematic constitutional territory and trying to answer the problems that were raised by their clean power scheme uh, by saying, now nah, we're not really doing what we're doing. There's a lot of this. No, that's the court originally stayed the 2015 plan. And then there's a lot of, see, we're fixing it. We're going to fix it so that it doesn't raise this question of whether or not we're going too far. Yeah. Uh, and that in itself was very um, revelatory to me because notwithstanding everybody yelling and screaming and saying that the Supreme Court is, again, incredibly radical and is going to destroy the earth, clearly both the Obama and Biden administrations understood that they were pushing the envelope in a really serious way by attempting to use this 1971 law in the way it was written to ballast their effort essentially to push America off of coal period. And that this, the, the size of that regulatory effort Roberts in his opinion says essentially is way too vast for this not to be a matter that the legislature has to take up. Right. It's not, it's not, it was not, there was no way that the people who wrote the law in 1971 envisioned this happening. There was no way that the revision of the law in 1990 envisioned this happening. So they are using unelected officials using power delegated to them by Congress are using a power that was not in fact delegated to them by Congress and that therefore this effort is unconstitutional and has to be stopped. Right. Maybe to back the tape up to 2009, you remember President Obama comes to office. Climate change is one of his main priorities. It's the centerpiece of the auto bailout. Uh, he says to Congress, which then was controlled by Democrats in both houses, he says, uh, you need to solve the climate problem or else I will. 
uh, and Waxman and Congressman Waxman and Markey try some legislation, some cap and trade regulation legislation. It stalls out in Congress for a variety of reasons, I think, including the fact that Obama had already announced he was going to go it alone. So why bother legislating? Uh, but as we get into the second term of Obama's presidency and Congress hasn't given him the legislation he wants, he's undertaken his own greenhouse gas program that culminates in this hugely expansive transformative program, which, as you said, is, is sort of celebrated by the administration and by progressives as being a, a landmark achievement, uh, a transformative program. But of course, as soon as they move from the political case for it to the legal defense of it, the rhetoric changes completely. And suddenly this becomes a very mundane program, just a run of the mill EPA program, not that big of a deal. It's kind of reminiscent of the rhetoric around Obamacare's individual mandate where President Obama kept defending it over and over again saying this is big, but it's definitely not a tax. It's not a tax, it's not a tax increase on Americans. Then as soon as the politics ends and the lawsuits begin, uh, the administration pivots to, well, actually it is a tax and that's why it's, it's constitutional. Uh, just to really quick wrap up the history of this, it, go, it gets challenged in court. The Supreme Court actually freezes it because the Supreme Court's gonna hear an appeal of the Obama program. But then of course, Justice Scalia dies, there's no longer a nine justice court, so they don't decide the case. Then President Trump is elected, his EPA pulls down the clean power program, creates what they call America's clean energy rule. Then Biden wins the election, his administration uh, pulls down the Trump rule. But in the meantime, the litigation over the Trump rule goes through the courts, reaches the Supreme Court, and so it becomes this case on the basic question over what the EPA's authority is more generally. And I'll just say in a nutshell, the crux of the majority's opinion is that you can't plausibly read the statute, best systems of emissions reduction, as allowing this kind of power grab over the nation's entire energy economy. It's just implausible to believe that Congress would have delegated such a uh, such a consequential issue politically, economically, also in terms of just federalism. There's no way we're going to read the statute uh, as, as allowing that power grab absent just explicit specific authorization, which isn't here. In dissent, Justice Kagan writes that the term best systems of emissions reduction is very broad for a reason. Congress intended for agencies to have flexibility and authority and discretion to react to fast changing technical questions. Uh, and then in the middle of all this, Justice Gorsuch writes a concurrence where he tries to elaborate in even greater terms what he thinks the court is doing more broadly in terms of casting a new era of skepticism on uh, agencies' sudden discovery of sweeping transformative powers in old statutes. And he explains why why that skepticism is good and necessary in our constitutional system. So the, the majority decision or the syllabus of majority decision reads as follows. Precedent teaches that there are, quote, extraordinary cases, unquote, in which, quote, the history and the breadth of the authority that the agency has asserted, unquote, and the, quote, economic and political significance, unquote, of that assertion, provide, quote, a reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such authority. 
This is called, I believe, the major questions doctrine. <clears throat> the idea is, yes, Congress has created a whole bunch of administrative agencies to deal with almost like Talmudic scholars, to deal with the law. And then if there are emendations or changes to reality or you know history or something like that, to then extend the law to other practices that they may impose because they fit the meaning of the statute, if not the actual language of the statute. But in this case, when there are major questions like, are we going to not have coal? Are we basically going to regulate coal out of existence? You can't say that Congress intended for the for unelected bureaucrats at an agency to determine that the coal industry in the United States be shut down by 2035. And I've seen a lot of mocking over the last 24 hours of the major questions doctrine, which I think is fascinating because you just choose your own poison. Like <clears throat> right now, this is the, you know, a conservative court. This is the Biden administration trying to impose climate change rules that it does not have the power or the EPA under Biden, that it really doesn't have the power to have. But you could see the same thing take place in a conservative administration on policies that liberals would despise. And so the major questions doctrine is really important because it says you still have to consider the fact that there are separations of powers and that major rules about how we do things in the United States, particularly in relation to the economy, are properly the province of Congress. Yeah. I just I have a question for Adam regarding this. So uh, Justice Kagan mocked the major questions doctrine by by saying it it shows the um, sort of selective way in which uh, conservative judges apply textualism, that that this is an abandonment of textualism. I don't I don't quite follow uh, how she comes off saying that. Uh, and I, I want Adam's thoughts. Well, sure. What she's saying is the stat, the, the conservatives are reading a statute differently because of the political or economic consequences surrounding the issue. She's basically saying there's, there's one style of textualism for normal cases and now a different kind of textualism, maybe not even textualism at all in these major questions cases. The court's response, and I think it's correct, is textualism always involves what, we, what lawyers call canons of construction, you might call rules of thumb, basic sort of basic rules that try to limit, well, that, 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 that inform the judge's exercise of discretion. You know, we read when, stat, when a statute's uh, interpretation might lead to great encroachment upon the states, uh, we have a, a, a rule, a canon of construction that says, be wary of that kind of encroachment on the states. There are other canons of construction that say you, you should construe criminal laws in favor of the defendant and put the burden on the government to write criminal laws as specifically as possible. And either the majority, or I think more likely the concurrence, the Gorsuch concurrence actually um, calls Kagan out on this and, and points to any number of cases in which she's used canons of construction. She has a really, I think, a, a kind of a funny and great rhetorical line in her dissent at the very beginning where she says, a few years ago, I said that we are all textualists now. Uh, it turns out maybe I was the only one. Um, so she's sort of claiming textualism for herself. But I'd say at a broader point, Abe, we shouldn't shrug off her criticism. 
because I think she's right in pointing out that textualism, this version of textualism, it does it does do more than just look at the sort of the literalistic words of a statute. It is informed by underlying principles, right? This is the whole fight that people are having now between, say, Adrian Vermeule's fans or, or libertarians or others who say you have to have basic principles informing your interpretation of statutes of the Constitution. And in a way, that's what the court is doing here. They say we live, after all, in a republic with a separation of powers. And that has to seriously inform uh, the way we interpret statutes. Adam, I want to ask you briefly about something that a concept that is sort of obliquely two concepts, actually, <clears throat> that are just obliquely referenced in the majority opinion, but feature rather prominently in the dissent. Um, the word Chevron and non-delegation. <clears throat> so the majority opinion just sort of touches on Chevron. Um, but Kagan dwells on it. And I think rightly, because the environmental impact of this decision is likely to be rather minimal, but its effect on future regulatory efforts, the Chevron deference being that if a regulatory agency has uh, is authorized by vague language in a statute to do a particular thing, you defer to that agency and its interpretation of the statute. That got really seriously hobbled in this decision. And Kagan notes the extent to which that's probably going to have a, a much broader impact on the, the whole regulatory environment. And then the majority opinion also notes the non-delegation doctrine, which is kind of a weird, not often cited um, <clears throat> interpretation of the Constitution to, to insist that Congress actually has to do its job, right? Um, and they cited it insofar as it was applied to the, to the vaccine mandate, overturning the federal uh, vaccine mandate. Um, but Kagan seems to have her eye on what this decision will actually do. And it was curious to see the extent to which the majority opinion being Robert's opinion, maybe it's not all that curious, but was tiptoeing around what the implications of this decision seem to be to me, which are quite sweeping. You know, uh, this gets back to a point that John made a few moments ago about how today the major questions doctrine is being attacked by folks on the left, but actually it's, it cuts both ways and it will cut both ways over time. Um, even just on this issue, climate policy, if it's a major question, well, that means it's going to get less deference, both in Republican, Democratic administrations and in Republican administrations. In fact, one of the sort of proto major questions cases, one from the late 80s, early 90s involving the FCC, it was a case called MCI. It was written by Scalia, and it actually uh, cut, it pushed back against a deregulatory phone regulation program that came out of the FCC. So this cuts both ways, and that goes to your Chevron point, Noah. This point, this doctrine of Chevron deference, that the courts should defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation of broad statutes, that goes back to the Reagan administration. Ironically, it involved an EPA program that, that then EPA administrator Ann Gorsuch, mother of Neil Gorsuch, had, had overseen in the Reagan EPA. Chevron deference was, was really fostered by conservative justices in order to create space for administrations uh, in that case, Republican administrations, to, to exercise discretion and not just be micromanaged by federal judges. In the 60s into the 70s, into the early 80s, you had judges, especially the D.C. Circuit's judges, constantly micromanaging administrations and trying to push them into a more pro-regulatory approach. So Chevron created space by giving deference to those agencies. But decisions like this case, they are a, a cutback on Chevron deference. They are saying, 
we are going to, we the judges will interpret statutes particular ways, regardless of what the agencies want to do. Um, there's a, an early, a case from a few years ago, a Robert's opinion involving Obamacare, where he said, in certain cases, they're of such major consequence, we're not going to apply Chevron at all. Uh, so the major questions doctrine, it both creates exceptions to Chevron, and it also um, affects the way that courts uh, administer Chevron uh, in practice. So it is a big cut back on Chevron deference. It's informed, as you said, by what's called the non-delegation doctrine. The non-delegation doctrine, it's not about how you interpret statutes. It's about whether you, the court, allow the statute to stand at all. It, in theory, if Congress has written a statute that's so open-ended, giving so much power and discretion to agencies, that the agencies themselves are in effect the new legislatures with no limits from Congress. Well, then that statute under the non-delegation doctrine is unconstitutional. Now that statute, that doctrine non-delegation, even though it's been invoked over and over again, going back to the Chief Justice John Marshall, it's really only been used two or arguably three times to strike down statutes as unconstitutional, all during the New Deal. So the non-delegation doctrine is not really presently a doctrine that strikes down statutes, although uh, Gorsuch, Roberts, Alito, um, Thomas, and others have all sort of raised the, the, the notion of maybe returning to it. But what you get in major questions doctrine is sort of a channeling of the basic principles of non-delegation into how we interpret statutes. And frankly, I like it a little bit better than the non-delegation doctrine because you don't have judges striking down statutes, which is a, the most dramatic step that a federal court can take in our constitutional system but rather it just shapes the way that we read statutes and leaves room for Congress to, to try again. So if the Chevron deference is, um, you know, our system should uh, d defer to uh, administrative agencies, all things uh, being equal because they have um, expertise, what we have here is a different kind of what might be a judicial legislative deference, meaning what the court seems to be doing here in large measure, and which is the real fulfillment of uh, an interesting trend in conservative thinking over the past 20 years, is saying, enough, Congress, stop not making these decisions. If, for example, if climate change is a huge national emergency, it is incumbent upon Congress to make that explicit in law and codify the regulatory efforts that we should be making to stop it. Uh, but can I can I jump in to say that this is where there's some there was a little section of, of Kagan's dissent that was that was really saying the quiet part out loud. And I think is at the heart of what the broader reaction on the left to this decision and to Dobbs as well uh, reveals. She says at some point, she says, Members of Congress often don't know enough and know they don't know enough to regulate sensibly on an issue. And then uh, like a paragraph down, she's like, members of Congress often can't know enough. And, and again, they know they can't to keep regulatory schemes working across time. So there's this weird sort of um, elite judicial uh, uh, projection, really, that says, well, we know that they should be doing this, right? Because this is a serious issue. They should be the ones actually passing legislation on things rather than doing what the left tends to do, which is have these ridiculous pie in the sky, AOC inspired Green New Deal projects that will never become actual legislation. So she's saying, well, they know they don't know enough. So they have to outsource their, their constitutional obligation to, the, to these agencies, which 
which was not at all compelling to me, but it did square with the rage on the left, including among democratically elected officials such as Rashida Tlaib, who called this fascism. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who said, you know, that's, this is it. Our entire system is in decay. And I, if I recall my Tocqueville correctly, I thought it was beautiful because it was the Supreme Court fulfilling a role that Tocqueville long ago identified, which is, you know, part of what they do is educate us and remind us as a kind of school marm role that this is how the Constitution works. This is how a repub this republic in particular is supposed to function. That is one of their roles. And here they are playing it again. And it's absolutely enraging a progressive left that wants to use the courts to legislate because they cannot actually pass legislation in Congress on some of these ideas. See, I like Elena Kagan as a sort of as a as a combatant uh, in these wars because she writes very uh, plainly, even a little informally. And she is she does say the quiet part out loud in some ways because she's intellectually honest. There's also a little interesting gamesmanship right in the in the in the dissent right before um, she invokes the passage that Christine talks about because one of the weapons that she uses uh, to fight against uh, non-delegation doctrine <laughs> is an article written by um, Adrian Vermeule uh, in 2002 uh, against the non-delegate Adrian Vermeule, uh, as referenced by Adam, uh, is a professor at, at, at the Harvard Law School who has gone very, very much to the right and believes that... Um, uh, libertarian conservative jurisprudence is has become amoral and indeed immoral, and that we should be um, infusing <clears throat> all of our everything with uh, sort of the the moral tone of where the country should go. So there's a little bit of interesting <laughs> intellectual mischief in her citations here, which I which I I enjoy as a um, as a Talmudist monkey, but um, I just want to read a little bit of what Christine's talking about because it is basically this. Now we're going back to the beginning of progressivism, which I think Gorsuch indicates in his in his concurrence. It is not surprising that Congress is always delegated, says Kagan, and continues to do so, including unimportant policy issues. As this court has recognized, it is often quote unreasonable and impracticable unquote for Congress to do anything else. First, members of Congress often don't know enough and know they don't know enough to regulate sensibly on an issue. Of course, members can and do provide overall direction, but then they rely, as all of us rely in our daily lives, <clears throat> on people with greater expertise and experience. Those people are found in agencies. Congress looks to them to make specific judgments about how to achieve its more general objectives. Why wouldn't Congress instruct EPA to select, quote, the best system of emission reduction rather than try to choose that system itself. Congress knows that systems of emission reduction lie not in its own, but in the EPA's, quote, unique expertise. Second, and relatedly, members of Congress often can't know enough, and again, know they can't, to keep regulatory schemes working across time. This is literally the entire debate that is at the heart of Adam's intellectual program. Adam, can you, can you, expound on this because you got it right here in this dissent she's coming right at you she's coming right at your jugular your your attack you know, on the administrative state you know john whenever i'm introduced at, a, at an event or something there's always a 50 50 chance that i i get introduced as leading the center for the administrative state and my stock reply is is no that's actually harvard law school i, I run just the center that studies the administrative state and I thought uh, Justice Kagan, former dean of the Harvard Law School, um, she really does embody the critique of, of our critique. 
now, like you said, she's a great justice to, to, to sort of spar with intellectually. I, I quite like her both because of, of how well she writes and, and I think how well she thinks, even though I disagree with her ideas. But here you have it uh, in a nutshell that Congress, the best it can do is sort of write aspirational statutes and then the real government can step in and actually make the real laws uh, and then administer the real laws. There's often a critique of the critics, critics on the right, uh, that we oversimplify things. We love to invoke James Madison's warning that the very definition of tyranny is combining the executive, legislative, and judicial powers all in one place. People say, well, that's not actually what, what the administrative agencies do. Well, Justice Kagan's dissent here comes very, very close to saying, no, that actually is what they do, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the reasons, as, as you point out, that, that Woodrow Wilson thought it was a necessary thing a century ago. Now, when I was detailing the history of the climate, the climate policy debates, you know, I've pointed out this all really started with Obama telling Congress, go legislate, uh, and if you don't, then, then we'll take care of it ourselves, which guaranteed then that there would never actually be any legislation, uh, because why would Democrats really compromise with Republicans when they know Obama would go it alone? And why would Republicans stick their necks out and compromise knowing Obama would go it alone and you'd be left with a primary challenge? Every time that Kagan or others suggest that Congress is just incapable of, of legislating on this. Uh, oh, by the way, another good example of that, remember Kagan was Solicitor General for Obama. Her successor, Donald Verrilli, when he was defending the Obamacare litigation legislation before the Supreme Court, somebody asked him if Congress ought to just take another crack at it. And he joked and he said, oh, this Congress, right? As if Congress couldn't actually do things. Well, over and over again, I think we see is that, yeah, Congress isn't well suited to legislate right now. And it's because it's been out of the legislation business for decades upon decades, more or less. Uh, and furthermore, we've created every possible incentive, especially through the courts, to keep Congress out of the legislation business by creating every incentive for political actors to channel all of their energy into the agencies so that where you might go to Congress and lobby for a bill, now you lobby agencies for, 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 um, for policies. And what does Congress do? Congress mostly sits back as kind of ombudsman for the administrative state, criticizing or praising what's happened, but not really, and, and cajoling the agencies to move on their own. We, we see this over and over again, members of Congress saying, we really, really need the agencies to act, but then the Congress just acting themselves. I think the hope is, and we'll see if it actually plays out, but the hope is that judicial reforms like this, like the ones that we discussed earlier, at, you, last time I was on the show about 48 hours ago, you kindly mentioned my piece in the current issue about the SEC and this big Fifth Circuit decision. The hope or the goal is that these judicial reforms will rechannel political energy into Congress and away from the agencies, uh, but we'll see. And I'll say we shouldn't, there's a risk that conserve, just as progressives are freaking out too much about this decision, there is a risk that conservatives will put too much hope in this decision or this doctrine. It is on its own terms really limited to the most consequential issues. And now people will debate what that actually means. Um, but this is not a silver bullet. This isn't the end all be all. It's going to take a lot more uh, than this. But the, hey, the panic I on the left, I'm sorry, just briefly, the panic on the left does seem to be warranted insofar as they understand that this is a, a an abrogation, not an abrogation, but a di diminution of state power. Uh, and they like state power. 
but they don't seem to understand or don't want to understand that what the Supreme Court is doing is disaggregating power. They interpret it as a usurpation. And we're just simply speaking different languages to the degree that we'll never be able to come to any sort of agreement on, we'll never be able to define terms to the extent that both of us understand them and recognize them and agree on them. Uh, if, if the interpretation of this court's term, which has been to uh, affirm Congress's role and disaggregate power to the various legislatures and the states and the federal legislature, do they, is the problem here that Democrats just really don't want to legislate? <laughs> That they don't want to wield power. I mean, we talked about that the last time you were on, um, but they've had, they have a real mandate from the Supreme Court. This is a this is an opportunity to get things done. You would think. Well, Congress, when when Democrats were had had enough uh, had enough control of Congress, they literally have work tri to, the trifecta. No, right no, now. no. But when when they had enormous control over Congress, in. 1965 and 1966, 64, 65, 66, and even in the mid to late 70s after Watergate, they legislated like like demons. They legislated like crazy uh, because they had veto proof majority. They had a veto proof majority in the Senate. They had 178 seat majority in the House. And, you know, when they passed the Great Society legislation, it's not that they are opposed to legislation, it's that they are opposed to the limitations on their ability to work their will when the country is more ideologically and politically divided, and they don't like that. So what they do is they move off their embrace of Congress and they move on to an embrace of the of the executive branch, except when they don't run it. By the way, they're they're also, I mean, and this and this is why this this decision sort of drove a stake through through the through their heart is they <clears throat> adore the cult of expertise um you know as we saw all through the pandemic um and and you know distressingly we we saw sort of the 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 fruits of that of that cult of expertise so they 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 love the idea that there are that there is a a class of of all-knowing uh superpower brains that that know exactly what you should be doing and and how and and so on just like it point out just in regards to, to something that adam's been talking about obama uh, uh putting pressure uh on on legislators and then saying well i'll do it myself there's another great zinger uh in the decision and this is from um from gorsuch though um where he goes where he where he goes directly at obama um he writes, when Congress seems slow to solve problems, it may be only natural that those in the executive branch might seek to take matters into their own hands. But the Constitution does not authorize agencies to use pen and phone regulations as substitutes for laws passed by the people's representatives. That is a direct reference to Obama, Obama's line uh, at the time that he was trying to pressure uh, Congress saying, well, if you don't do it, I've got a pen and a phone. And you remember well, and when you remember when he did pen in a phone that he did pen in a phone after he had lost the Senate and the House. So he's like, OK, so the public has spoken. My party is no longer in control of the set of the Senate or the House. So because our goals are just and our aims are true, I'm just going to do it anyway. And then and the whole purpose of that was to say, OK, I'm going to do it anyway. And then we're going to let the Supreme Court sort it out. And they, they did sort it out, right? In DACA, they 
they they they threw his scheme into the garbage. But I think Adam, it's important to note you mentioned the other decision that Roberts wrote that came yeah. out yesterday because it fits this to a T and also what Noah's saying. So historically, there were separation of powers and there were separations of responsibilities of powers. So Congress has the authority to regulate commerce among the states and writes legislation, makes a budget, various things in the Constitution. And the president, it has been seen over time, has immense latitude over foreign policy questions. And that uh, the Constitution is rather silent about Congress's role, except, let's say, spending. So the decision in the immigration case that Roberts wrote speaks to the separation of power. If this says Congress must be empowered to make the decision about whether or not coal is going to stop being used as an energy source, if I have this right, the decision in the immigration case says, don't you be trying, don't you lower courts and various other things, step on the executive branch's authority over matters of foreign policy and what happens in relations between two countries, meaning Mexico and the United States. Is that, am I, am I looking at that the right way, Adam? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot more sort of legal nuance um, to the case. It really was like this one, a statutory interpretation case. Let me just say really quick about Roberts. You know, I joked at the beginning, he's still the chief justice after all the pronouncements of his demise after Dobbs. But the thing about Roberts on this court, in addition to just being chief, is from over and over again, he is in the middle of the court's administrative state cases. Right? Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, they write a lot of great opinions, often concurrences or dissents, um, trying to elaborate the conservative judicial critique of the administrative state. Roberts often finds himself writing the majority opinions, including in cases like the immigration case yesterday, where progressives are in the majority. Uh, he wrote the majority opinion in King v. Burwell. It had to do with interpreting Obamacare there, where he, he cut back Chevron deference uh, with the support of the progressives on the court at the time. Um, over and over again, he puts himself in the middle of this. And at oral argument, he often is raising questions about the dangers of sort of radical flip-flops in policy from one administration to the next, um, and the lack of real legal and procedural rigor in the agency. So he wrote the, the majority opinion, if I remember correctly, in the... Um, the census case where Obama, where Trump wanted to add the citizenship question to the census, the Roberts court throws that out, says um, you clearly were, were, the agency was clearly pretextual in, in its justifications for this approach. We're not gonna allow that to stand. In this case, the, involving the Trump administration's remain in Mexico policy, the Biden administration rolled it back. They said, we actually have discretion to decide um, under the statute whether to send people back to Mexico or not, or to parole them in the U.S. or to detain them. Um, and the, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the majority, said actually here, the Biden administration's uh, reversal of the policy is justified under the statute. They do actually have some discretion here. Uh, Justice, um, uh, I'm blanking if it was Justice Alito or Gorsuch who wrote uh, the dissent, I think it was Justice Alito, uh, criticized the court's opinion, said you really weren't reading the statute the right way. Barrett said we shouldn't be hearing this case at all for jurisdictional reasons. Um, but at the end of the day, Roberts was in the majority saying, like you said, this is a place where the statute actually gives the agency some meaningful um, discretion. 
Can I, can so, I just add yeah, one more? Please. One more thing. I don't mean to. Well, gosh, the, it's very tempting, John. Um, but I'll just say, we keep saying over and over again, this is about fixing Congress. And that's true. And, and we're saying we're guarding against executive power. And that's true. But for me, I think the most important thing to keep in mind here is that these doctrines, this delegation of power to the, to the executive branch over decades and decades, it's actually deformed the executive branch as well. Right. Under separated powers, the basic idea is Congress should take its time, deliberate, debate, compromise, legislate. And then once that's done, you need the executive to execute. And the famous Federal 70 says swift, speedy, energetic execution. Well, the climate debates are sort of a good example of how far we've gone in the wrong direction on this, too. This is an executive policy that's droned on in debates going back and forth now for over a decade. Um, it's not actually energetic execution. It's slow legislative debate and litigation um, in and around the executive branch. So there's nobody actually in the business anymore of, exec of energetic execution, right? The executive itself has been deformed into this sort of slow, laborious, quasi-legislative process. Now, that deformation goes all the way back to the mid-20th century and earlier, the laws that Congress passed in 1946 to restructure administration, to restructure Congress, really were keyed to turning the executive branch into kind of a quasi-legislature that would get oversight from Congress. This is a huge problem in our system. It's strange that we now live in a system where a president gets elected and he has to rush to get as many sort of quasi-legislative regulations out the door in the first year or two knowing that there's then going to be two years of litigation, and that might be their only bite at the apple to make policy. Because in the meantime, we're not getting any real execution in a real sort of in the classical sense. So just as doctrines like the major questions doctrine, the hope is that it'll make Congress a better version of itself. The real upshot of that then is it allows the executive to actually be an executive again. Um, you know, one of the uh, major issues here in relation to everything we're talking about uh, are the macroeconomic consequences of this kind of policy. And if you want to understand the workings of our economy and how our ideas about the economy were developed and what a free market means and why we use the term free market and why even though there's a lot of regulation, uh, regulatory, um, let's say, distortion uh, in the American system, why we remain the freest market in the world, you should be reading David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, a daily primer to economic theory and understanding that, uh, that connects uh, our system and the way we uh, consider our freedoms to doctrines of human flourishing, faith, and the good working order of a civil society. Um, this book is a necessary adjunct to understanding everything that is going on in this chaotic economic moment. Uh, we're, we're taping this, I believe uh, we are on the cusp of hearing that we are in uh, officially in a recession. Um, according yesterday, we were, we were told that the Georgia Fed had determined um, that the second quarter numbers were negative, which would mean two straight quarters of negative growth. And that is officially a recession, the worst possible news that Joe Biden could be getting, why we're in a recession, how to get out of the recession, all of that. This is stuff that is central to David's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. His name is spelled B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Go to Amazon, 
Barnes and Noble, wherever you get books, buy it for yourself, buy it for your friends, do whatever you need to do to get David's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Abe, I want to make a point that you, you have often, you have often brought up. I wouldn't, I, I don't want to describe you. I, I want to characterize you as a climate change skeptic, but if we're going to speak, if we're going to talk this sort of like, if we're going to talk the silent part out loud, here's what's interesting about this. We have this 200, we have this 2015 rule uh, that essentially is explicitly designed to end the use of coal as an energy source by 2035. Um, and if you want to know why Joe Man, if this is in perfect chrysalis, why there is a Joe Manchin and why he is gumming up the Biden works, not on coal. Joe Joe Manchin is the Democratic senator from a from the state of West Virginia, a state that went 40 points for Trump. Um, that state wisely, unlike a lot of other states, has determined and decided to keep him in the Senate as a, as a person in the Democratic Party because he is standing there effectively saying, you cannot destroy my state's economy so easily. And were Congress to get together and say climate change is real, say in legislation, climate change is real. It's the major national emergency of the 21st century. We have to take very serious and significant steps to end greenhouse gas emissions. And we're going to do it this way. And fought this through Joe Manchin, other states with coal, other states with, you know, with uh, that, that do oil and gas exploration and fracking and all this other stuff and got it passed. Then the national consensus would be that climate change is the greatest emergency facing our planet. It is not the national consensus, no matter what the media want, want to tell us. It is not the national consensus. This is where we get back to abortion. If abortion had passed through state legislatures all through the country, it would be <clears throat> politically far less controversial than it ended up being. Um, what how, Lay out for me how you think this plays out well i mean it's it's to your point so uh elena kagan said that in part of what she wrote was that um the 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 dangers of climate change there can be no more serious doubt about the dangers of climate change which to your point if that were so then there would be if there could be no serious death and there would be no problem <clears throat> or very little problem <clears throat> Uh, uh, passing uh, laws that would eradicate all the all the dangerous uh, pollutants that 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 contribute to to climate change. But I, I I don't. It's it's going to play out. I think at the way a lot of things are going to play out in the in the coming years, which is at the state level. I don't. I, there's not going to be. I don't think this any any sort of broad <clears throat> mandate about about uh, environmental law or 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 climate law. We are divided on this and many other issues in, in this country. I mean, don't you think? I, I don't. I don't see there. I don't see there being oh. any sweeping laws in this. And and to the point uh, earlier when we were discussing this this idea of uh, Congress should defer to experts, we're we're even divided among experts, right? And and certainly the pandemic showed us that the erosion of authority um, that that the so-called expert class, the te technocratic elite expert class, 
was justifiable given their behavior. And I think that, I mean, talk about not reading the room. We don't want the Supreme Court to be following public opinion, but there was a, the, I think what was so striking about Kagan just assuming, oh, you know, well, of course Congress will defer to experts. It's because she assumes that they all think the same way because in the world that an Elena Kagan was formed in, they do think the same way. The problem is that unlike in the progressive era where there was a similar sort of uh, chauvinism about, about uh, expertise and an assumption that the little people were too uh, uneducated and simplistic to understand these technical questions, the, the, the ability to censor the opposing voice now is quite powerful. Like it, you are able to kind of drive other alternative expert opinions out of the way into a corner and shut them down. And so, yeah, so one of the great things about this, um, I think is that you're gonna have to show your work now, right? We, we don't, we're not just gonna take it on authority. Um, how did you get there? Persuade me, make your case. Well, I'll give you another example. <clears throat> Legislate, what, what an administration of agency cannot do is provide compensation, by which I mean, let's say that the country decides that climate change you know, is a national emergency that requires every possible step taken and that this is going to destroy the economy of West Virginia. Well, the Congress is in a position to do something about to support West Virginia if the legislative decision is that West Virginia's main source of income must be ended. Congress can send West Virginia $200 billion or a trillion dollars or invest or do something or build every you know nuclear power plant that would replace coal in West Virginia or something like that. No administrative agency can provide compensation for that which it is um, seizing, right? That's essentially, you know, now we're getting into real, but I mean, this is a taking. You're saying you can't, you know, we are not allowing you to do X. Congress can, can provide uh, the resources that it is taking away and in fact would have to in some fashion or other if you were envisioning a scheme in which this actually could get through 60 senators and, you know, and, 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 and come into law. And that's where you'd see a national consensus. In other words, you'd say, yeah, whatever we have to do, we have to do. If West Virginia needs a trillion dollars, we'll give West Virginia a trillion dollars. That's worth a trillion dollars to save our planet. There is no consensus because where there is a consensus is an elite opinion. And even there, because of the you know overwhelming unitary uh, moral pressure that has been exerted by in, by the environmentalist lobby and environmentalist uh, people, um, it's very hard in polite society to to answer skepticism or even to say you know what yes climate change is man made and things are going but there are interesting possibilities here in the world of climate change where we can maybe make money off it or fix things or do things, whatever, you know, it's not just, a, it's not just that the world is going to come to an end, but you or can't that, even have, <clears throat> you can't even have that conversation. Or that they, that the federal government is the only solution to this problem. Right. I mean, that's actually where I think a lot of people, there is space, there's, there's all kinds of private enterprise that could help solve this. If it is indeed a widespread global issue that can contribute. I mean, we, we've had this discussion and, and Noah's really good on this. Whenever we start talking about space exploration, it's like, look at what private companies have been able to do compared to what the state has been trying to do on a lot of these issues. This is another one. 
Adam White of the Boyden Center for the Center of Boydenism. I have to say that every time because it's a it's a private joke and I'm making anyway. Anyway, thank you for being our first two time in one week guest illuminating this very complicated and interesting issue. Um, please read Adam's uh, article in the July August commentary reigning in the bureaucrats, which deals with this in large bore, though not the specific issue of the West Virginia case we were talking about, but is incredibly illuminating about this. Go to commentary.org, subscribe, pony up. We've been getting a lot of people telling us that they have listened to my ministrations and my, my importuning and have done so, and you should do so too if you haven't done so, so that you can read Adam's article without any guilt and listen to this podcast without any guilt whatsoever. Uh, one programming note, we are almost certainly not going to have a show on Tuesday. We don't have a show on Monday. Um, because of the 4th of July, we have logistical difficulties. Relating to the release of Noah Rothman's book, The Rise of the New Puritans, coming out on Tuesday. So not only should you subscribe to Commentary, you should go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever, and pre-order that book, get the hardcover shipped to you. You can read it at 12.01 a.m. on Tuesday. If you buy it on your Kindle, it'll pop right in there, and you can get it done and read it all night before you go to work on Tuesday up oh, and there is adam's kindle <laughs> he is at the ready he is at he is waiting with bated breath for noah's book the rise of the new puritans so please have a wonderful fourth of july weekend for abe noah and christine i'm john pot keep the candle burning